Chapter 13 of Vietnam, The Advisory Years to 1965 by Robert Futrell and Martin Blumenson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 13, Air Operations, 1962. Interdiction, Strikes, and Reconnaissance. In World War II, and the Korean conflict, interdiction had slowed the flow of enemy forces, supplies, and equipment into and within battle areas. In Vietnam, according to General Anthus, the most lucrative targets were Viet Cong training areas, troop concentrations, supply depots, and sampans. Admiral Felt and General O'Donnell had the same impression. Interdiction air attacks against Viet Cong base areas held a special attraction because the Vietnamese ground forces seldom penetrated to them. Yet air interdiction was very complex. The Viet Cong rarely wore distinctive uniforms, and they mingled freely with civilians. To tell them from the general populace called for timely intelligence and reliable aerial reconnaissance. Unfortunately, the Vietnamese Air Force owned but two C-47s rigged with cameras for day photography. The single air photo intelligence center and its 12 photo observers were situated in the J-2 division of the Joint General Staff. The L-19 observers could do visual reconnaissance, but the best of them were being shifted to tactical fighters. Abel Mabel RF-101s operated out of Don Mayon Airport near Bangkok, Thailand. They sustained a daily sortie rate of 2.8 flights and photographed high-priority areas of interest to MACV and the Vietnamese. When over South Vietnam, these planes as a rule staged through Tonsonut, where they turned over their film to the small U.S. Air Force photo processing cell for interpretation. Although the RF-101 was good for general reconnaissance of clearly fixed targets, it was not suited to spotting an enemy who hid under heavy foliage by day and moved at night. Furthermore, processing and interpreting the photography in Saigon, then delivering it to requesting units by U.S. Army courier plane, usually took several days. Some ground commanders complained that the interval between a request and a delivery was at times 30 to 45 days. Intelligence from members of the enemy forces was needed, and it was scarce. Starting in December 1961, U.S. intelligence advisors did their best to teach their methods to Vietnamese. Besides the 44 specialists in MACV J-2 intelligence, 230 Americans worked with Vietnamese units in the field. Unproductive from the U.S. Air Force point of view, MACV intelligence was oriented toward ground operations. Normally, Vietnamese interrogations of prisoners should have yielded significant information but the law authorized the military to hold prisoners only two days before handing them over to provincial authorities for a court hearing. This was not time enough to learn about enemy activities vulnerable to air interdiction. Vietnamese army units in the field, provincial officials, and covert agents could request Saigon for specific strikes. If Saigon approved, Vietnamese pilots were free to attack these targets, usually marked by air observers. While U.S. Air Force officers were not empowered to question an approved strike, General Anthus asked for positive control by radar or forward air controllers when Farmgate aircraft took part. Targets were often described in vague terms like groups of huts, troop concentrations, or VC strongpoints, and were frequently hidden under jungle cover. In spite of precautions, airstrikes were dangerous particularly in heavily populated and poorly mapped regions. In January 1962, for example, Vietnamese officers wanted an airstrike at dawn on the Viet Cong-held village of Ba Tu in the Parrot's Beak close to the Cambodian border in War Zone C. Because the Vietnamese could not handle pre-dawn takeoffs, Farmgate was asked to fly the mission. At first, Colonel Gleason, Farmgate commander, thought the target too close to Cambodia, but accepted the task when the Vietnamese labeled it crucial. Radar at Tanzanut monitored the flight, warning the planes as they neared the canal that supposedly was the border. The aircraft failed to receive the message, but an SC-47 that had performed weather reconnaissance was flying back and forth over the canal to mark it. 
From another C-47 positioned along the border, Colonel Gleason led and an airborne coordinator directed the strike. As eight T-28s and three B-26s bombed, rocketed, napalmed, and strafed, the Minister of Defense and the three Corps commander watched from a C-47. The Farmgate commander felt sure no one had made a mistake. Yet a few days later, the Cambodian government charged T-28s with having crossed the frontier, killed a villager, and injured three others. The Vietnamese defense minister shrugged off the protest, saying that the whole area was a VC hotbed. The State Department, however, wished to prevent disruption of Vietnamese-Cambodian relations. At American insistence, Saigon apologized and awarded compensation. General Anthus, 2nd Advon commander, forbade Farmgate to strike within five miles of the border during daylight and ten miles at night. Moreover, a forward air controller, airborne or on the ground, had to mark the targets. These restrictions might have afforded the Viet Cong complete sanctuary along the border, but the rules did not apply to Vietnamese pilots, who could operate more freely. Toward the end of January, all available Vietnamese and Farmgate planes at Ben Hoa, Pleiku, and Da Nang simultaneously attacked 14 carefully pinpointed targets in five areas. After action reports revealed good results. The defense minister said the strikes were so timely and accurate that the Viet Cong suspected spies in their midst. All the same, top American officials had nagging doubts about the validity of the targets selected by the Vietnamese. They stressed to the Joint General Staff the value of intelligence, proper controls, and serious post-strike assessments. Admiral Felt, SYNCPAC, knew the problems of bombing areas where friendly and hostile people intermingled. Impressed by Vietnamese officers who wanted to avoid using weapons against innocent persons, he sponsored better air-ground communications for close air support. At the Secretary of Defense Conference on February 19, 1962, General Anthus showed how air interdiction hurt the Viet Cong. Defense Secretary McNamara evinced interest in using flares for strikes to relieve outposts under night assault. He ordered SYNCPAC and MACV to furnish Hamlet's cheap but efficient short-range VHF-FM voice radios so they could call for help when attacked. The Secretary warned that U.S. advisors were to do nothing that the Vietnamese could do for themselves and were to risk hazards only when inescapable. Well-managed interdiction based on hard intelligence worked remarkably well. On March 2nd, the two corps commander requested an immediate strike against a group of Viet Cong holding a meeting in the village of Hanyang. The Air Operations Center validated the request and dispatched two Vietnamese 86s and a Farmgate B-26. They killed at least 12. Even so, the issue of haphazard air attacks lived on. Two U.S. Army advisors informed Army Brigadier General Harvey J. Jablonski, the MACV J-4 Logistics, that the Viet Cong were exploiting strafing and bombing attacks for propaganda purposes. By removing just the killed and wounded males, they gave the villagers the idea that the women and children left behind were the targets and victims of airstrikes. Jablonski passed this information on to Ambassador Nolting, who on March 3rd met with Generals Harkins, Timms, Jablonski, and Anthus. Nolting at first thought of curtailing air activity, but Jablonski would not cite instances of air attack. Harkins then pointed out that tighter curbs would benefit merely the Viet Cong. General Jablonski, in Hawaii, repeated the charge he had made in Saigon, and the question was re-examined at the Secretary of Defense Conference of March 21st. Ambassador Nolting urged close scrutiny to prevent killing innocent people, and Defense Secretary McNamara agreed to allow air operations to go on under strict controls and stringent intelligence criteria. Roger Hillsman, Assistant Secretary of State for Far Eastern Affairs, later defined this decision as the worst of two worlds. Military men disturbed by air restrictions and diplomats fretting about propaganda benefits to the enemy. To assist the Vietnamese in gathering better intelligence of Air Force interest, Admiral Felt authorized, 
and the Air Force sent a detachment of the 6499th Support Group to Saigon. Six officer and six enlisted intelligence specialists arrived in March, but two officers were unqualified and removed. Denied direct access to enemy prisoners, the others could ask questions only through Vietnamese interrogators. An additional obstacle was the lengthy procedure in processing a request for a pre-planned interdiction strike. The 2nd Advon Intelligence Directorate could propose a target, and the Joint General Staff's Air Photo Intelligence Center researched and prepared data sheets and folders. One copy went to the province chief for checking, a second to the Air Operations Center for preliminary planning. Field Command next decided if the target was susceptible to ground action, which took precedence over air. These steps could consume several days or several weeks. Actually, most intelligence rose from the ground force division and province chief levels. These authorities often suggested targets to the corps commander, who routed the requests to the operations center. Yet no matter how intelligence generated strikes, the province chief was the key. He alone determined whether bombing a target would imperil his people. To pinpoint Viet Cong radio transmitters for air intelligence, the Air Force delivered a C-54 to Vietnam in March 1962. The transport featured infrared detectors, cameras, and a high-frequency direction finder. About the same time, the U.S. Army Security Agency put airborne radio homing units in three Army L-20s. During their first operational flight on the 12th of April, the C-54 and L-20s came upon far more Viet Cong radio transmitters than expected. However, the direction-finding equipment could not give a precise fix on the radio sites. The Viet Cong radios were short-range, low-power sets, and they operated in periodic short bursts. Though the American equipment was not advanced enough to place the signals accurately, the C-54 flew 102 special missions in 10 months. The cameras worked fine for ordinary photography, but the infrared and the direction finder did poorly. The U.S. Air Force pilots could return fire against a known source in self-defense, but needed to be very careful, for they rarely knew a source's exact location. In the daytime, Farmgate planes could not fire unless under positive control of a Vietnamese forward air controller, and cooperation with Vietnamese L-19 controllers was frequently difficult. In addition, the elaborate reconnaissance and the target marking no doubt alerted the Viet Cong to impending strikes. This impeded action against an already elusive foe. In the spring of 1962, interdiction focused on small groups of guerrillas and sampans near Vietnamese army positions. Then, late in May, the Joint General Staff and MACV targeted the Yosa War Zone Headquarters area of Inner Zone V. With utmost care, they identified, authenticated, and pinpointed 19 targets spread over an area of 230 square miles. As a final validation, a plane flew a Viet Cong defector over the area. Vietnamese and American aircraft, 11 B-26s, 11 AD-6s, and two T-28s took off on May 27. Bad weather obscured five of the targets, but the planes made repeated strikes on the other 14. Regardless of the careful preparations, a B-26 pounded the friendly village of Da Ket, killing four persons and demolishing a dozen buildings. The strike pilots saw no Viet Cong on any of their runs, but bomb damage assessment photography showed a command post wiped out, 14 other structures burned and destroyed, and 30 damaged. The Vietnamese field commanders hailed the attack as a total success, and No Dinh Yu, President Diem's brother, reported about 400 enemy killed. Some Viet Cong defectors later credited their change of heart to the bombings. Both PACAF and 2nd ADVON were willing to accept the mission of disrupting Viet Cong security in base areas beyond the reach of ground forces. The American embassy in Saigon nonetheless questioned the wisdom of the attacks. Some U.S. observers were positive that air power at Doc Ket had killed no more than 50 of the enemy. The commander of Inner Zone V had escaped. Innocents had been killed. Consequently, 
General Anthus ordered Farmgate no longer to fly free area missions without a forward air controller. As spring wore on, a more extreme belief nudged aside assertions of how air interdiction hurt pacification because it endangered guiltless people. On April 15th, MACV published the first extensive Viet Cong order of battle, listing 18 battalions, 79 companies, and 137 platoons. The overall strength was put at 16,305, less than the 25,000 estimated by the Vietnamese. But backing up the regular troops were paramilitary organizations of around 10,000 part-time guerrillas. And over the first two weeks of May, 1,000 to 1,800 more Viet Cong had stolen into Zone D from Laos to form a new battalion. After weighing this information, MACV J2 Intelligence concluded that air interdiction had no military effect on the Viet Cong. What then could isolate the Viet Cong from the populace who furnished them food and other supplies, or from their logistics routes that brought them weapons, ammunition, medical materials, and fresh troops? There was no other way than by air interdiction and ground thrusts into enemy base areas. Admiral Felt desired these missions continued. He especially wanted Vietnamese rangers and regular units to fight guerrilla style in the Viet Cong war zones. It is, of course, basic to our side, Felt told General Harkins, that the initiative be denied the VC. Our concept is to harass them, push them down, and extend them far beyond the capabilities of their logistics support, thus destroying them. On the other hand, Harkins deemed nearly all of the ground commanders too inexperienced for large-scale efforts, and the Rangers lacked leaders for extended field operations. Unlike the Army, the Vietnamese Air Force could carry the war into the jungle areas held by the Viet Cong. What the pilots needed was valid target intelligence. In August, Colonel Ralph A. Newman, Air Liaison Officer with Vietnamese Air Force Field Command, instructed liaison officers to work closely with the ground forces at division and regimental levels. The aim was to identify targets for interdiction, chiefly for Vietnamese planes returning from sorties with unused ordnance. Most crews hesitated to land with bombs and rockets hanging outside the aircraft, and since 1958 had jettisoned them on vacant land near the airfields. Aware of this waste, General Anthus proposed assigning pre-planned targets, preferably in Zone D, so at least the munitions would fall on Viet Cong territory. Anthus and the air liaison officers pressured I and two corps to accept this proposal. They stressed that a backlog of such targets would ease scheduling, distribution, and use of aircraft, as well as keep the Viet Cong off balance. By September 1962, however, the suggestion was still hanging fire. Admiral Felt asked General Harkins, MACV commander, whether area denial methods might make Zone D too hot for the Viet Cong. Felt advised, entire extent of techniques and devices available for such purpose should be used. We have in mind, for example, scatter bombing with butterfly bombs, proven lethal in Korea, and other type Air Force mines. We also visualize use of chemical irritants and defoliants to expose targets for airstrikes. In other words, we want to destroy or drive sick, starved, blistered, and blasted Viet Cong from Zone D so that we can scoop them up outside of their nest or prevent them from setting foot in the area again. Thus spurred, MACV and the Joint General Staff started to target War Zones D and X, headquarters of Viet Cong Inner Zone V, for an intensive air campaign. On October 3rd, the 5th Division submitted 129 specific targets. President Diem next ordered a five-day bombing attack in Zone D to begin on November 1st, followed by a Special Forces ground penetration. He also called for the I and II Corps to cooperate in a similar bombing and to follow up penetration into War Zone X, which lay in the mountains dividing the two corps. Gradually, the Corps commanders and field command obtained many more targets through military channels. Provincial chiefs designated free areas for air attack. Vietnamese crews could strike these areas without a forward air controller, but Farmgate had to have targets marked by a Vietnamese L-19. Review of the free areas came when Vietnam's strained relations with Cambodia worsened. Feeling threatened by both South Vietnam and Thailand, 
Cambodia, on August 20, 1962, had appealed to President Kennedy for a neutral status like that of Laos. President Diem resented the implication that South Vietnam was an aggressor. He said there was little question that Viet Cong redoubts drew support from across the border. Vietnamese troops who carried out sporadic raids into Cambodia had captured communist weapons and ammunition, destined for the Viet Cong. Undeterred, Prince Norodom Sihanouk, Cambodian chief of state, charged on September 10th that Vietnamese amphibious craft under air cover had violated his country's soil. Any more such aggressive acts, he threatened, would lead to severed diplomatic relations, recognition of North Vietnam, and closer ties with China. Five weeks later, Vietnamese naval forces moved against the island of Phu Quoc near the Cambodian coast. They seized 17 tons of ingredients for making explosives. Sihanouk's threat to invite Chinese assistance startled the State Department. Ambassador Nolting met with President Diem and stressed there must be no military action that might bring Chinese communist forces onto Vietnam's flank. In compliance, the Joint General Staff banned ground and air operations within 10 kilometers of the Cambodian border. If a river, road, or other physical feature clearly marked the border, Vietnamese forces could pursue the enemy to within two and one-half kilometers. Otherwise, the chase would cease at eight kilometers. Vietnamese pilots could open fire on a hostile aircraft 10 kilometers inside South Vietnam if certain that the plane would fall inside Vietnamese territory if shot down. Though the border restrictions did not sit well with Vietnamese officials, Secretary of State Dean Rusk and the Joint Chiefs of Staff wondered whether the restraints went far enough. Militarily, Rusk cabled Nolting, there is general agreement that success lies not in drawing tight cordon sanitaire in Maginot Manor along vaguely defined frontier, but primarily in working outwards from rural areas one, and secondarily through strikes against VC strongholds. Usefulness of latter, when carried out near frontier, must be considered less important than political diplomatic problem. The Joint Chiefs suggested a new name be found for free areas. Admiral Felt did not object and 2nd Air Division, formerly 2nd Advon, commenced to call them approved interdiction targets. To General Anthus, sponsorship of area denial by Admiral Felt smacked of indiscriminate bombing. Even in Zone D, it was impossible to know positively that all victims were Viet Cong. When Felt proposed having C-123s drop 10,000 pounds of napalm on marked targets during a ground offensive into Zone D, Secretary Rusk objected. He wanted napalm confined to high-priority targets that were clearly Viet Cong installations. Moreover, the State Department retained the right to pass on all plans meaning to use napalm in large amounts. In the end, General Harkins withheld U.S. Air Force aircraft from delivering napalm in Zone D and allowed the Vietnamese to do so. Ambassador Nolting supported this decision. The curbs put on Americans made it hard to carry the war to the heart of the enemy sanctuaries. The best that General Anthus could do was to allow F-102s to fly across Zone D at night, breaking the sound barrier and causing sonic booms. It may not destroy anything, Anthus said, but I can say positively there has been considerable VC sleep lost in the last few weeks. Scarcely less important than interdiction was U.S. Air Force support of Vietnamese ground operations. Air Force officers constantly offered air support to ground commanders through the tactical air control system. To sell this support, steps were taken to strengthen the Air Operations Center at Tonsonut and the radar facilities at Da Nang and Pleiku, procure and employ American air liaison officers and forward air controllers, and persuade locally powerful Army commanders to coordinate with air forces. In general, these commanders were jealous of their authority, secretive about their plans, and inexperienced in applying tactical air support. Inasmuch as the Air Operations Center depended on day-to-day -day knowledge of Vietnamese ground operations, U.S. Army and Vietnamese liaison officers were assigned to the center in February 1962. The idea was to inject tactical air into operational planning at the outset. If Vietnamese ground commanders had but an inkling of how the support system was supposed to work, U.S. Army advisors had not the air experience to qualify them as air liaison officers. They refused to accept the tactical air control system outright, and from the U.S. Air Force view, were quick to criticize, slow to help. 
Bolstering of the Joint Operations Center was one of the benefits accruing from the April 1962 visit of General LeMay. He ordered several U.S. Air Force officers assigned to the center, Lieutenant Colonel Charles J. Bowers assuming the duties of Deputy Director. These officers monitored and encouraged the submission of daily requirements for air support and allocated sorties on the basis of available aircraft. Quite a few things weakened centralized control of tactical aircraft. Inexperienced personnel and unreliable equipment bred problems. In April, for example, communications between Tansanut and Da Nang remained out for three days. Moving aircraft from rotational duty at Da Nang and Pleiku demanded special approval from Vietnamese Air Force headquarters. Consequently, the Air Operations Center could not route these planes rapidly to areas of greater need. Also, the center was heavily committed to operations requested by Field Command and Three Corps. This led I Corps at Da Nang and II Corps at Pleiku to look upon the AD-6s at these fields as theirs to use without telling the center. Likewise, the fighter squadron at Trang now and then flew T-28 strikes in response to local requests without the center's knowledge. When General Anthus made staff visits to Corps, Division, Regimental, and Battalion headquarters, he found little understanding of how the tactical air control system was meant to function. Attempts to bring helicopter activities under the Air Operations Center did not go well. General Harkins in April directed armed tactical aircraft to accompany helicopter assault missions. He was therefore certain that the center was wholly aware of all U.S. Army flight operations in the country. Yet Army ground liaison officers readily admitted that the MACV order for escort planes was observed only about 10% of the time. The figure of 10% was misleading, seeing that these ground operations mostly involved small forces of company or platoon size in very brief firefights. Since the Air Operations Center was unable to coordinate all air operations, it could not wholly exploit available air support. Data on ground operations being planned was often not to be had. The commanders were sensitive to Viet Cong espionage and personally drew up and launched actions with scant notice, even to their own staffs. A few commanders went so far as to suspect the center to be a Viet Cong source of information, and with reason. The Vietnamese Air Force dispatched fragmentary operations orders from Tansanut to its squadrons in the clear. Because the teletype circuits were possibly insecure, there were inevitable leaks. U.S. Army officers disliked the tactical air control system, deeming it too rigid. Accordingly, there was no realistic policy governing the relationship between fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters. In June, MACV gave General Anthus coordinating authority over all air operations. In July, General Harkins ordered helicopter support missions to have proper air escort unless the helicopter unit commander judged it unnecessary. In August, Admiral Felt considered it essential to have every type of air operation coordinated by the Air Operations Center and to have air cover from fixed-wing aircraft for each helicopter operation. Not until December 1962 did the latter requirement go into force. Airstrikes close to friendly troops called for close cooperation between air missions and the movement and fire of ground units. As in Korea, tactical air control parties came to be used. The Air Force supplied a seasoned fighter pilot to serve as the air liaison member of the control party. The Army furnished the vehicles and mechanics, radio gear, and operators. The ANVRC-30 ground mobile radio jeep carried the air liaison officer and Army members of the control party. The vehicle's radios linked with the forward air controller and the strike pilots above and with ground and air units. The control party's work was thwarted whenever the jeep was slowed or stopped by cut and mired roads, ambush parties, and jungles and swamps. A further frustration was the meager experience of Vietnamese in coordinating air-ground operations. The shortage of L-19 pilots prevented the assignment of air liaison officers to ground units. The foremost need was to secure sufficient two-man L-19 crews, pilot and observer, to place AD-6 strike aircraft on the target. So, in lieu of an air liaison officer, the Vietnamese Air Force sometimes designated an L-19 crew to serve as forward air controller for a ground unit during a single operation. The pilot and observer repaired to the unit, received briefings on the planning action, and tried to become familiar with the procedures and terrain. 
The crew then returned home to conduct other air control and reconnaissance missions. On the day of the operation, however, the L-19 crew flew back and controlled airstrikes for the ground unit. Unable to operate at night, L-19 crews in daytime usually flew at 3,000 to 5,000 feet, far too high for good surveillance and target marking. The air observer marked targets for fighters by radio direction or hand-thrown smoke grenade, commonly by both methods. Criticism and penalty awaited an L-19 crew if ground fire damaged the plane. The observer was subject to severe punishment if he erred in marking a target and friendly casualties resulted. To communicate with regular troops, the Civil Guard, and the Self-Defense Corps units, L-19s carried ANPRC-10 Army radios lashed to their back seats. Because the plane could power only its own radios or the PRC-10, the crew could not converse with strike aircraft and ground forces at the same time. The PRC-10 lash-up was a poor makeshift, and ground units wanted man-pack radios that could mesh with existing UHF-VHF airborne sets. No such radios were obtainable in 1962. The U.S. Agency for International Development was giving large numbers of radios to provincial paramilitary forces. These sets were the commercially procured HT-1 and TR-20, with characteristics similar to those of the PRC-10. As an interim measure, MAG refitted U.S. Army helicopters and Vietnamese and Farmgate aircraft with the ANARC-44 Army radio. This set could tie in with the PRC-10, HT-1, and TR-20. Complications of this sort paled beside the general insufficiency of the L-19s. They were often simply unavailable. In April, for example, Farmgate pilots arrived over the target and could see a firefight on the ground but the Vietnamese controller never showed up. Toward the end of 1962, Farmgate received two L-28As, later known as U-10As, for forward air controller duty. They were too costly for such use. Moreover, Farmgate still had to have Vietnamese air observers or air guides on the ground to mark targets for strikes. Three U.S. Army helicopter companies, each attached to a corps, enabled troops to move swiftly against the Viet Cong. On the way to the target areas, the chopper pilots liked to fly at 700 feet and hug the terrain. Their success led Secretary of Defense McNamara to deploy a Marine squadron of 24 UH-34D helicopters to Vietnam. Afterwards, he moved two more Army H-21 companies to the country, plus a company of 15 armed UH-1A and UH-1B helicopters from Okinawa and Thailand. Manned by Americans, these gunships were to deliver suppressive fire, now deemed to be self-defense. In September 1962, the Joint Chiefs of Staff ordered all helicopter gunships bearing U.S. markings to carry a Vietnamese observer. In July 1962, Strike aircraft flew 139 combat sorties in support of helicopters. Farmgate, now commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Eugene H. Muller, Jr., perfected tactics whereby two T-28s supported each helicopter flight. One T-28 swooped down to 200 feet, flew slightly ahead of the leading helicopter, and made slow turns to search for the enemy. The second T-28 stayed above the formation, set to make a firing pass on a target. As the helicopters approached in trail for landing, the strike aircraft flew on each side and strafed the flanks to suppress enemy fire. Despite Admiral Felt's belief that transport helicopters constantly required fighter escort, General Harkins authorized helicopter gunships to operate alone if need be. Bad weather now and then grounded strike aircraft, but not necessarily helicopters. In addition, escorts were hard put to fly slowly enough to stay with the helicopters. Seeking to put U.S. Army air operations under the tactical air control system, General Anthus warned Harkins against fighting two distinct air wars. On the other hand, Army officers tended to see armed helicopters best used when under a ground commander's control and carrying out local operations. In August, MACV gave the tactical air control system supremacy solely over air traffic control. The Viet Cong ambushed 462 road convoys during the first seven months of 1962, most of them in three corps north of Saigon and near Zone D. On the morning of June 16th, some four to 500 Viet Cong took up ambush positions along the road to Binh Hoa, 
about five kilometers south of Ben Khat. Opening fire on the convoy in mid-morning, the communists killed two American advisors and 23 Vietnamese. The column requested air support, and three hours elapsed before the strike units at Ben Hoa got orders to take off. By that time, the enemy was withdrawing towards Zone D. Even so, a B-26 and two 86s under L-19 control killed 50 enemy and enabled pursuing Vietnamese troops to recover nearly all the equipment and weapons stolen from the convoy. Air Force officers pointed out to Vietnamese commanders that a single L-19 over the convoy would probably have sighted and reported the enemy, and no doubt would have prevented the ambush. On July 14th, a Viet Cong battalion ambushed a convoy en route from Saigon to Phuc Long, killing 25 persons, including a U.S. Army advisor, and wounding 29 others. The convoy had not asked for air cover. In fact, neither two corps nor field command had known that the column was on the road. The request for air support came one and a half hours after the fighting erupted. By then, the guerrillas had long been gone. General Anthus emphasized to MACV the advantages of air cover for convoys and rail movements. Not only would tactical air enhance security, it would also absorb Vietnamese and farm gate sorties currently unused. At General Harkins's suggestion, President Diem in August directed his army commanders to call on the Vietnamese Air Force to protect trains and convoys conveying arms, ammunition, and other critical cargo. The simple presence of the unarmed L-19 often broke up an ambush. On August 3rd, two L-19s spied 200 guerrillas lying in wait between Quang Nai and Da Nang for an ammunition train headed north. When the planes appeared, the Viet Cong fled. Later that month, an L-19 stopped the first vehicle of a convoy just short of an explosive charge. In contrast to the 32 requests for convoy escort from January to July 1962, there were 506 between August and October. Doing most of the train and truck convoy escort, L-19s flew ahead of the movement and searched for signs of ambush. They radioed for ground or air reinforcement as required. Except for the compulsory combat air cover for high-priority cargoes, tactical aircraft selected to escort usually stayed on ground alert. The combination of planes devoted to this duty constituted about 10% of the total tactical air effort. Convoys would have incurred less damage had they kept travel to days and hours when aircraft were on hand to afford cover and protection. The technique was effective. From July on, no train or convoy escorted by air ran into ambush for several months. Helicopter assault operations proved more complex than train or convoy escorts. On August 30th, I-Corps mounted an air-ground operation 55 miles south of Da Nang. Plans envisioned 10 Vietnamese H-34s and 12 U.S. Army H-21s to lift 200 Rangers and 200 Special Forces troops to the battle area. Four T-28s would fly helicopter escort, while four 86s, four T-28s, and one B-26 readied the landing zone. A CV-2 caribou out of Da Nang was to be the airborne command post. The I-Corps Air Liaison Officer, Lieutenant Colonel Byron R. Callan, pointed out in vain that the caribou lacked the fuel capacity for orbiting during the whole operation. The plane would have to return to Da Nang for refueling. Early on D-Day, Six C-123s ferried 200 Vietnamese troops from Da Nang to Quang Nai to join the others. The Caribou Command Post checked the weather in the battle area and signaled for the first heli-lift of 200 troops. The strike planes made their pre-landing attacks, but by the time the helicopters came, fog had rolled into some of the landing areas. The Caribou sent the helicopters back to Quang Nai. When the fog lifted, the Caribou called for the mission to continue. Although the four T-28s escorting the helicopters completed another pre-landing strike, the Viet Cong opened up on the choppers with sharp fire. A damaged H-21 escaped to an emergency landing area. After the crew was rescued, a T-28 destroyed the craft to avert its capture. Subsequent to the safe landing of a second wave of helicopters, the Caribou needed to go to Da Nang for refueling. While it was away for over an hour, Orbiting fighters relayed messages to the commander, but he was out of direct contact with his troops. 
The fighting on the ground was inconclusive, and in mid-afternoon, helicopters began extracting the forces. As the last chopper left the scene, the Viet Cong opened fire, downing another H-21. The wounded crewmen were rescued, and a T-28 shattered the copter on the ground. Why were the T-28s unable to suppress the Viet Cong fire? The Caribou's limited communications for directing fighters and ground troops were frequently interrupted for one reason or other. Target marking was poor. An American forward air controller flew an L-19 over the area for three hours at 2,000 feet. His Vietnamese observer marked just one target, the smoke bomb missing by 3,000 feet. Lastly, the delay between the pre-landing strikes and the first helicopter landing had likely alerted the Viet Cong. At Da Nang on September 22nd, the 2nd Division commander planned a Helleborn attack to begin on the 24th. The six Vietnamese T-28s on station could not muster the firepower for the air support required. Delayed until fresh aircraft arrived, the operation went on September 26th. By then, the Viet Cong had slipped away. The growing accuracy of Viet Cong ground fire against aircraft caused concern among U.S. Air Force officers. The toll of Farmgate planes shot down mounted. A T-28 on August 28, 1962, a U-10 on October 17th, and a low-flying B-26 on November 5th. Other aircraft were damaged. Following a night napalm strike, Lieutenant Colonel Miles M. Doyle nursed his B-26 home after losing an engine to 30 caliber rounds. To silence enemy gunners, the Farmgate commander ordered his pilots to strafe while delivering ordnance at low levels. Army pilots of armed helicopters were optimistic about the defensive abilities of the UH-1. The chopper carried two 8-tube, 2.75-inch rocket pods and two 30-caliber machine guns, each mounted on a landing skid. General Anthus continued to plead for the UH-1 and other U.S. Army aircraft to go under the tactical air control system. Meanwhile, the Army used the gunships for firepower formerly furnished by artillery, explaining that the UH-1 supplemented, rather than replaced, strike aircraft. A vital adjunct to interdiction and close support was air reconnaissance, and MAG in April 1962 had projected a program for the Vietnamese. Its centerpiece was the transfer to them of four RT-33 photojets. Since the State Department did not at first object to the transfer, 13th Air Force made ready to train pilots for the planes. Next, MAG formally asked for the RT-33s together with three RC-47s and 14 RT-28s. The RC-47s would get photo coverage underway at once, and small Vietnamese photo processing cells at Pleiku and Da Nang could supplement the American facility at Tansanut. Examining the proposal in June, SyncPAC recommended that three camera-equipped C-47s be secured, one for each corps, two Abel Mabel RF-101s be completely committed to missions in Vietnam, a Vietnamese photo processing cell be opened at Tansanut, and an austere U.S. Air Force Reconnaissance Technical Squadron be set up in Saigon for detailed photo interpretation and target production for all of Southeast Asia. At the Secretary of Defense Conference in Hawaii on July 23, 1962, Admiral Felt spoke out strongly for giving the Vietnamese RT-33 photojets. Mr. McNamara was negative because of the Geneva Accords, and he questioned the superiority of the RT-33 over conventional aircraft. General Harkins favored the photojets but suggested a compromise. Bring two U.S. Air Force RF-101s to Vietnam and furnish the Vietnamese RC-47s and RT-28Bs. Two weeks later, Admiral Felt urged the Joint Chiefs to approve the RT-33s as superior reconnaissance planes needed for intelligence. He noted that the Army had sent some jet turbine-powered UH-1A helicopters to Vietnam. The Admiral opposed RC-47s because in Laos they were vulnerable to ground fire. He thought it difficult and expensive to modify the RT-28 into a camera plane that at best would have moderate performance. The State Department now strenuously opposed jet photo planes for the Vietnamese on political grounds and Secretary McNamara remained unconvinced that Admiral Felt had made his case. Although the RT-33s stayed in the military assistance program, 
three camera-equipped RC-47s and 18 RT-28s arrived to buttress reconnaissance. At Tansanut, the Vietnamese activated the 716th Composite Reconnaissance Squadron. It accepted two C-45 photo aircraft, one having a 6-inch and the other a 12-inch vertical camera. While awaiting more planes, pilots of the 716th Squadron flew strike missions in T-28s. Not until mid-1964 would the Vietnamese attain a fully operational reconnaissance program. Meantime, the Air Force's 13th Reconnaissance Technical Squadron, 13 officers and 84 airmen, would be formed at Tansanut. Until the Vietnamese could do their own air reconnaissance, Able Mabel RF-101s were for a while deployed to Saigon. In July 1962, the Geneva Agreement suspended aerial reconnaissance over Laos, and by October, Able Mabel was flying about 88% of its sorties over Vietnam. This sparked the move in December of all four RF-101s to Tansanut, where they continued to fly 2.8 sorties a day. Flying from Vietnam rather than Thailand widely expanded the total photo coverage per sortie. Detecting the Viet Cong from the air demanded night and infrared photography, side-looking airborne radar, and infrared snooper scope techniques. Most of these methods were still in development. In April 1962, MACV had secured two RB-26C night photo aircraft for Farmgate, the planes reaching Benhua in May. During the last half of 1962, they gave good service in the face of obstacles. Flash illuminate cartridges were in short supply. Reflections from flooded rice paddies blurred night photos. A ground accident on October 20th put one RB-26C permanently out of action. The coming of the Army's 23rd Special Air Warfare Detachment to Nha Trang in September 1962 reinforced reconnaissance. The detachment had six OV-1 Mohawk turboprop observation aircraft, rigged with cameras and 50 caliber machine guns. It further featured two portable laboratories to process photographs at division headquarters and at remote locations. Split into teams of two, the OV-1s assumed direct support of Vietnamese ground units. The Mohawks flew mostly visual and photo reconnaissance, but carried Vietnamese observers who could approve targets. General Anthus felt it foolish to give aircraft to ground unit commanders. When he protested to General Harkins, the reply was, we must all be objective. A U.S. Air Force forward air controller with the 23rd Division at Ban Métuol noted in November that the Mohawk detachment could make a nine-hour delivery on photo requests compared to the normal U.S. Air Force time of seven days. Apprised of this, Anthus could only hope that the U.S. Air Force might not lose assigned roles and missions because of a failure to provide resources to perform them. Even with RF-101s flying from Tansanut and the photo processing cell working at peak efficiency, photo delivery took from three and a half to more than five hours. The local Mohawks could deliver emergency photo requests within two to three hours. Admiral Felt pondered the status of the OV-1s. Was their local employment an economical use of force? Or did their presence ignore the basic U.S. policy of having Americans train the Vietnamese instead of fighting their war for them? Yet General Harkins cited the excellent results chalked up by Mohawks, and on December 14th asked for four more. Like the helicopter gunships, Harkins explained, the OV-1s complemented but did not compete with U.S. Air Force air power. Nevertheless, by December 1962, the Army had 199 aircraft in Vietnam, the Air Force 61. There were eight Army generals, three Air Force. As the U.S. Air Force Director of Plans noted, it may be improper to say we are at war with the Army. However, we believe that if the Army efforts are successful, they may have a long-term adverse effect in the U.S. military posture that could be more important than the battle presently being waged with the Viet Cong. Both Army and Vietnamese Air Force aircraft remained outside the tactical air control system. As early as May 1962, Brigadier General Stephen D. McElroy, 13th Air Force Vice Commander, commented on the situation to General Anthus. Air Force T-28s flew combat 
while Vietnamese T-28s were on the ground. Army helicopters made combat lifts, while Vietnamese H-34s were unused, unreported, or transporting passengers. In response, Anthes acknowledged this sensitive subject. Progress, he said, can only be measured in small units, meaning inches. A team from the Royal Australian Air Force noticed the same condition. The Vietnamese Air Force, along with the Navy, did not perform up to its full potential. Perhaps this was due to the absence of proper representation at senior military levels. Hence, there was no joint planning as practiced in more sophisticated armed services, and Air Force views and requirements received little consideration. In June 1962, the 49 Vietnamese strike aircraft flew but 412 of the 1,029 sorties of which they were capable. Too few flight leaders, no desire to fly combat, and scarce targets were the causes. Flying fell off markedly during weekends, siesta hours, nights, and bad weather. At any rate, the picture was not entirely dismal. The 412 sorties in June were a decided improvement over the 150 in January. The signs were mixed as 1962 closed, but it was unmistakably clear that the Republic of Vietnam, so shaky at the start of the year, had not collapsed. Even more encouraging was the attitude of the National Liberation Front, Hanoi's political structure in South Vietnam. Its press release in July 1962 called for the creation of a neutral state, much like Laos. Was Hanoi thinking of abandoning the effort to unify Vietnam by force? And what was the meaning of Ho Chi Minh's quoted statement praising Diem's patriotism? In 1959, Ho had predicted the defeat of South Vietnam in a year. In September 1962, he began saying that victory might take 15 to 20 years. Was he concerned that the Americans might bomb North Vietnam? The war against the Viet Cong, President Diem informed the National Assembly on October 9th, had taken an incontestable turn for the better. Later that month, Admiral Felt and Ambassador Nolting bolstered Diem, by assuring him that the American resolve to resist communism in Vietnam would not weaken. Obviously then, the step-up in U.S. support for Vietnam that had started late in 1961 seemed to be working. End of chapter 13